Fierce Women Writing is a partner of We Need Diverse Books, a nonprofit that advocates for diversity in children's and young adult publishing at every level. They have many programs that support this mission, including grants, mentorships, and retreats for writers, classroom book giveaways, an app for diverse book recommendations, and others. Learn how you can help them put more books featuring diverse characters into the hands of all children at weneeddiversebooks.org. Welcome to Fierce Women Writing, the podcast where female voices are elevated, creativity is ignited, and writers are inspired. I believe that stories can enlighten, heal, and entertain the reader and the writer. First, the writer has to quiet their doubts long enough to get the words on the page. I'm here to help you put your doubts away and focus on your creativity. Every day I talk to writers and would-be writers who aren't writing. They're not writing because they don't think they're good enough, because they've been rejected, don't have time, or don't know where to start. That's why I created this show, so that you can hear from other writers who want to inspire you to share the stories that only you can tell. I'm Sarah Gallagher. Come write with me. Hey there, Fierce Writers. Today's guests are Maika Muli and Maritza Muli. Maika Muli is a Miami native and the daughter of Haitian immigrants. She earned a bachelor's in marketing from Florida State University and an MBA from the University of Miami. When she's not using her digital prowess to help nonprofits and major organizations tell their stories online, she's sharpening her skills as a PhD student at Howard University's Communication, Culture, and Media Studies program. Her research focuses on representation in media and its impact on marginalized groups. She's the eldest of four sisters and loves YA novels, fierce female leads, and laughing. Maritza Muli graduated from the University of Florida with a bachelor's in women's study and the University of Southern California with a master's in journalism. She's worked in various capacities for NBC News, CNN, and USA Today. Maritza is a PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania exploring ways to improve literacy in under-resourced communities after being inspired to study education from her time as a literacy tutor and pre-K teacher assistant. Her favorite song is September by Earth, Wind, and Fire. Welcome to the show, Maika and Maritza. Hi, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. I would love to hear how you two nurture your creativity. Well, for me, it really involves reading other people's writing. I, I think especially during this, you know, pandemic that we've all been living through, it's been really hard for me to be able to foster that sense of creativity. But what I've done is make sure that I'm still reading. And what I found is that it was hard for me to focus on, let's say the printed word and looking at a book and reading the words in my hand. But I've started to listen to audiobooks in I would say record form. <laughs> like I've been listening to so many audiobooks and it has really helped me to be able to like still capture um all of the different new books and things that I want to read and get inspired from those works but not allow, you know, like the sh- distractions of the world that are going on which can get to me sometimes when I'm reading because you know my mind will drift off. That re- really listening to audiobooks has helped me to kind of hone in on other people's works which then inspires me to be creative as well. Yeah, I love that question about nurturing your creativity. That's a really thoughtful way to put it. And I would say that creativity, I mean, we're all creative. We're all creatives. But um, 
Creativity has always been a part of my life, particularly because we spent so much time in the library growing up. Our parents would take us there with our two other sisters every weekend, and we would check out a ton of books and go through them during the week because we weren't allowed to watch TV because our parents are mean uh, immigrants. (laughs) (laughs) But... Um, it was a, it was still a wonderful experience to just dive into all of these different books all the time. Like these stories have always been a part of my life. Um, and they're just kind of my friends now and being able to write and make new characters that can be friends for other people is just still so wild to me. What is your best writing tip? My best writing tip is to just do it. (laughs) Honestly, I think sometimes we get caught up on things having to be absolutely perfect before we even start. And that analysis paralysis will make you never start anything. You're just going to be frozen in in place. But I think just just starting is um, really what I would recommend. And it, it, it seems daunting at first, but maybe you can try writing in a different way. So if you're like in front of a computer screen and the act of looking at a blank screen intimidates you, maybe you can start by writing in a journal or maybe you can start by using your voice notes to capture your ideas and then transcribing it so that way it doesn't feel like you don't have anything on the on the page. But I would say definitely just get started. What about editing and revising tips? So I tend to do both, depending on how I'm feeling and how the spirit is moving me as I write. Either I will just do like a big word vomit situation and get it all out and then go back and edit, which is what I just did for a paper that I had to turn in today for class. But I also tend to do a lot of self-editing either in my head before I start writing or as I am writing. Um, So it really depends. And I think that it's okay to do different types of editing. Like you don't have to be married to one particular style because I do whatever works best for me. Like if I have written something and I immediately think of a better way to say that or or come up with a more succinct or clear or dramatic uh, way to convey the emotion or Uh, plot or whatever is going on, then it's okay to change there. But I guess the caveat would be to make sure that you're not just consistently fiddling with just one section of text to the detriment of moving forward. What's your biggest writing challenge right now? I would say our biggest writing challenge right now is I would say is juggling everything because, you know, as Sarah mentioned when she read our bio at the start of the episode, Maritza and I are both PhD students. So we need to be able to manage our course load, which involves a ton of reading. And sometimes that reading is scholarly work that sounds very um, not (laughs) user-friendly. So it takes some time to be able to to get through all of the works and things that we need to do for a class in addition to writing as well as other projects that we have going uh, going on. So for us, it really comes down to um, being able to manage our time. I would say, I mean, I'll say, I said for us, but I'll say, speaking for me directly, I know that um, managing time and making sure that 
we get everything that needs done is a really big challenge for us right now. And especially in the middle of a pandemic, sometimes you're just like, I don't have the energy. <laughs> but, you know, we manage and we make make it work. Yeah, the deeper that you go into a writing career with the agent and the editor and the pitching and all that jazz, it, it's still just as exciting, I would say. But now you have the... Uh, the additional like deadlines tacked onto that. So uh, we are not afraid to ask for deadlines uh, or not deadlines. <laughs> we are not afraid. <laughs> we are not asking for deadlines. <laughs> we are not afraid to ask for extensions to deadlines, <laughs> which I've done um, for class or um, in work as an author. Um, and that definitely has helped being open, trying to stay as organized as possible, but not being afraid to just admit that you need more time because time is very important. Talk to me about the relationship between your physical and mental health and your writing. Ooh, that's a good question. Okay. So the relationship between physical and mental health, I would say at the start of this pandemic, nobody knew how long it was going to be. Right. So at the beginning, I was super productive. I was like trying new vegan recipes. I was working out. I was doing all these amazing things. And then as time continued, I was like, oh my God, this is not going to end. (laughs) So um, of course, the motivation that you have at the beginning when you think, oh, this is only going to be just a few weeks, uh, it it totally impacted me. And I would say um, I... We, we had an uncle of ours who passed away from the virus, um, I would say around June, I think maybe May or June. And soon after, around that same time, the New York Times printed uh, a front page story of some of the names of people who had passed away from the virus. And that really, really impacted me so much so that I decided I wanted to finally see a therapist. And it was my I would say I've wanted to see a therapist for many years, but I've never actually done it because I haven't prioritized it. But because of the nature of what we were going through, I was like, this might be the time. And I honestly, if you can do it, I recommend that you can. It's totally, excuse me, helped me to be able to realize my own patterns, to kind of clear up some mental space that I didn't realize was blocked. And then that then translates into the work that I'm able to create especially uh, now as we're managing so many things like being at home with your family, not with your family, having deadlines and things that, you know, outside of the world based on your own life and responsibilities as if things were normal, it becomes a lot to, to navigate. But honestly, speaking to a therapist has been, I would say a godsend. And also um, just trying to be consistent with working out. Like we have a little exercise bike. Um, I have my weights. So that all translates into like me having a way to release that like maybe physical pent up energy as well as the mental energy to then be able to be in a place where I can then go and create. So I don't believe that someone needs to write every single day to be considered an author. There isn't a productivity goal that you're shooting for necessarily. Although I do understand that deadlines do exist. So do what you have to do. But um, during this especially hard time of being in this pandemic, I definitely went through a period of 
not being able to read, just having crazy reader's block, not even writer's block. But after we submitted um, a, a manuscript for deadline, um, I, I just was not able to read because of everything that was going on in my head. And then finally, I came into, I came across a book that I just fell in love with and made me remember why I loved being part of this this world of publishing and and just and enjoying a story. Um, so I think that it's important to give yourself the space that you need. So if what is best for your writing is not writing in that moment, then that is okay. Would you tell us about your experience with publishing? So there is a popular um, online pitching event called Hashtag DV Pit. And I had heard about it or read about it online. And I suggested very heavily to Mika that we should pitch in it, even though we hadn't finished our the manuscript that would eventually become Dear Haiti Lovelane, which is a no-no. You know, when you're out there querying agents, you should have a full book if it's fiction. Um, and yeah, but... Uh, I decided to pitch anyway because live life on the edge and we got a lot of great uh, we got a lot of likes and retweets and stuff which was very exciting and we ended up getting a lot of great feedback from agents um, through that and we ended up not getting signed or getting any offers of representation but um, the agents pointed out a few things that we had known uh, we needed to uh, strengthen in our story. And it was like the kick in the pants to actually get down and, and do it and like present this story that we really want to um, write. So we finished the story for real, for real. And we uh, sent it out again and we ended up getting a few offers of representation. And um, we are now represented by our lovely agent, JL Sturmer, and she is awesome. She really is just on the same wavelength as us. And um, we can be so honest with her, which is really great because you do want a literary agent who is on your side and part of your team. Like at, at the end of the day, like your agent is the person who's there for you. Um, everything else is like the really cool stuff that you're doing together. Um, and then we were able to, you know, get a book deal and um, go from there. But I would say that early on in your writing career, you have to have, even as you're growing as an artist, you have to have an idea of what you're trying to do. Um, like we got some interest by some fancy agents, for example, who were really into Elaine's really uh, straightforward sassiness, you know, um, she's really funny, if I do say so myself. Um, and they loved that. But they weren't really feeling the, for example, magical realism aspect of our story. And we had to stop and think like, are we going to change the fundamental part of our story so that we can get this person or people to, to be interested. And we decided to really just stay true to what we were um, setting out to do. And then we found a team that understands that and respects that and embraces that aspect of our identities as writers. So 
it might take longer, but you should be able to find your people out there. And I would add that it's okay if you get rejected. Like Maritz and I have a folder in our email that is buried within a folder and another folder and another folder, but it holds all of our rejections <laughs> when we were going through this process. So, um, and you know, sometimes you have to hop in there and remember and look through it. One, it keeps you humble. And two, it just reminds you that not everything that you write is going to be for everyone, right? And I think that that's okay. And sometimes we try to for force a square peg into a circle space by maybe working with somebody who doesn't necessarily understand you as a writer or the story that you're trying to write. And for us in particular with Dear Haiti Love Elaine, like that mysticism and magical realism that is included in Dear Haiti Love Elaine is totally uh, a part of our Haitian identity. Like there's so much mysticism within Haitian culture that to ask someone who's writing about a Haitian American uh, character to remove that means that you don't understand who the character is. And also because it is our own uh, identity, you also won't understand who we are. And um, I think that's okay. And of course it feels scary in the moment because Maritza and I were like, oh my God, did we just walk away from our only shot <laughs> of getting, excuse me, of getting this book published? But it ended up working out the way that it was meant to. So I think there definitely, as you know, as an artist, you have to make sure that you're okay with standing up for the story that you want. And then also realizing the places where there is room for improvement. Who are one or two other women writers or creators we should be aware of right now? Oh, I'll take this question first. Okay. So that we should be aware of, I think everyone is already aware of uh, this writer. <laughs> so this first one that I'm going to talk about, and that is Elizabeth Acevedo. I have the Poet X with, with me right now. I'm like looking through the book. I love the Poet X. I love Elizabeth Acevedo's writing, um, particularly because she, because of her background in writing poetry and spoken word and doing all of these things, it totally translates into her writing. And she's able to make you care about a character and have you experience the emotions that the characters are experiencing, whether it be through prose or verse. And I think that is really a remarkable talent that she has because it shows that you can still keep the lyricism in your speech even in a body of work and you don't have to feel that you need to maybe strip down any of those components of your own writing. And it just makes the story that much stronger. And it just pulls you through the story. Like there's one thing to talk about the voice of a character and how important it is. But also when you look at like looking at the sentence structure and the way that she puts words together, I'm like, Oh, this combination of words is remarkable. And I truly, truly enjoy Elizabeth Acevedo's writing. And the other um, author that I would, that I want to talk about briefly is Alyssa Cole. Honestly, I think anything that she writes is going to be an automatic buy for me. Not, I think I know anything that she writes is an automatic buy for me. Um, she, I would say has books across the spectrum um, she writes a ton of, uh, uh, romantic novels, but she recently had a, a thriller novel that came out. Um, and I listened to the audiobook for that and it is called when no one is watching. And 
it's really amazing. I think one of the things that Alyssa Cole has spoken about in interviews is how some people have asked her, are you moving away from romantic writing? You know, and she was like, no, I just wanted to write a thriller. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that that is the kind of career that Maritza and I want to emulate. Like we want to be able to write whatever it is that we want to write and be great at it. And honestly, Alyssa Cole's body of work, whether she's looking at, you know, romantic comedies, romance, thrillers, um, speculative fiction, whatever it is that she decides to write, she does a wonderful job at it. And I want, you know, the listeners to know that don't feel that you have to pigeonhole yourself and stick to only one genre if that's not what you want to do. I know for myself, I can be very flighty. So it really is whatever it is that is inspiring me at the moment. And I would 100% recommend anything that Alyssa Cole writes, as well as Elizabeth Acevedo. I'm a huge admirer of Evie Zaboy's work. First, because she is Haitian American like me, but just as a writer in general, I am really drawn to the way that she also writes whatever type of story that she feels compelled to write. And that's so inspiring. She will write dramatic and sad and heavy and and supremely important works like Punching the Air and American Street, and then also important and funny and like funny and hilarious are the same thing, but funny and and dramatic um, works like My Life is as an Ice Cream Sandwich and Pride, which is a remix of Pride and Prejudice. And I am a sucker for any Pride and Prejudice remake out there. But the, her ability to just encompass so many different stories to fully represent that there's more than one way to be black and that there's, uh, there, there are countless stories available to us to write and to read is so, so inspirational for me as a writer and as a reader. And I also, um, love Gloria Ansel Dua. She wrote Borderlands and she was one of the first scholars to start talking about this idea of what we call intersectionality, but she uh, described uh, uh, her experiences as a woman, a woman of color, a queer woman of color as living on uh, on the borderlands. And she was a Chicana living on the literal borders of the United States and Mexico. But she was talking about how it is to straddle all of these different identities as a human in the world too. And her work has such a dreamlike quality, but it's also planted firmly in history. And um, she does an amazing job of extending uh, the imagination of what academic writing could be, while also having such a firm place in um, the, the consciousness of people outside of the ivory tower, which is something that I definitely want to do as a, re- a researcher myself. And where can listeners find you online? Yes, I am at Mayika Bulit everywhere. And I'm sure my name will be spelled out in the show notes. <laughs> and I, okay, I wanted to say this. I'm right behind you. But also, I am um, everywhere at Maritza Bulit. Thank you so much for sharing your writing and wisdom with us today. It's been a pleasure. This was fun. Thank you for the opportunity. This was awesome. Thank you. This was great.
I put the reading after the interview this week because Maika and Maritza were generous enough to share the entire first chapter of their highly anticipated book with Fierce Woman Writing listeners. I'm super honored that they wanted to share so much of the book with us. Here they are, reading from One of the Good Ones. Chapter 1. Happy. Thursday, July 26. Three months, nine days since the arrest. Chicago, Illinois. She was mine before she was anyone else's. All mine. Partly mine. Now she belongs to you and them and shirts and rallies and songs and documentaries. They say she had a bright future ahead of her. And she was a star whose light burned out too soon. She was going to make a difference. That's all true, but it's not the truth. Kezi was more than her brains and her grades and her voice. She was more than her future. She had a past. She was living her present. She could have been mine. Should have been mine. She was my sister before she became your martyr, after all. Even as I sit as still as a lion stalking her prey, inside, I'm racing. My mind is buzzing with the thoughts I don't say. My heart is knocking erratically against my sternum and is always one beat away from bursting through my chest. I should be used to it. But you never get used to strangers sliding their arms over your shoulders in solidarity to apologize for something that isn't their fault. Not when Kezi being gone doesn't feel real to begin with. How can it, when I didn't get a chance to see her face one last time before they incinerated her body and put her essence in an urn? My parents are already inside the auditorium, seated in their place of honor in the front row. I will join them eventually, but not until the millisecond that I have to. When everything went down, we made an agreement. I will play along and be a cheap carbon copy of the daughter they lost, a constant reminder to the world that she was one of the good ones. But before the lights shine on us and cell phones are trained at our brave, heartbroken faces, I will be me, the prodigal daughter. I glance at my phone. Nothing. New phone who dis, I guess. I sink into the hard bench outside of the Harold Washington Theater, where the National Alliance for the Progression of Black People's Chicago Chapter is hosting its annual Salute to Excellence ceremony. I try to breathe. I don't want to salute anything. I don't want to be in there. I just want to pretend that this slab of wood is a cloud, that I am a regular girl laying outside and soaking up the final drops of sunshine at the end of a mundane day. They call it the golden hour, a photographer told me a few weeks ago, when we were waiting for my mother to be finished with makeup for a photo shoot that Essence magazine was doing about America's new civil rights leaders, the new normal. He was fiddling with his camera, removing and reattaching the giant zoom lens of his Canon, and was apparently one of those people who couldn't stand silence. Others see me and can't help but speak. I can read the pain in their eyes when the realization crawls into their psyches. Come on, say something nice, don't sound stupid. But instead of the I'm so sorry's and the you're so brave's, he prattled on about the magical moments just after the sun rises and right before it sets. It was a brush of fresh air, fresh air actually. Way less shadow, he said. Nowhere for your subject to hide. I think my sister mentioned it once, I volunteered. She was a YouTuber. His eyes widened in terror. 
of course. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I'm so... It's fine. I had spoken too soon. That was then. Now I'm wondering how long you have to sit outside to get a tan when I sense the shifting of light through my closed eyelids. Someone is standing over me and blocking the sun. My heart is no longer knocking at my chest. It is about to crack through my ribcage, my guts, my skin, my top, like a bullet, only bigger. My eyes swing open, and I hurl my purse across my body reflexively. Dumb, dumb, dumb. Any deranged Randall can recognize you out here, and... Ow! It's even worse than I thought. It's Jenny. What are you doing here? I ask. She's an integrative biologist and basically lives in her laboratory. Mom, Dad, and I had been visiting Chicago for a few days, but Jenny stayed behind in Los Angeles. I didn't mind. I just got in, Jenny says as she rubs her shoulder. Bummer. I was aiming for the face. She hands me my bag. Why are you not inside? They're about to start. This is my alone time, I say. I stretch with my arms wide above my head until I notice a blonde man parked in a car out across the street watching in interest. Our eyes meet. He smiles. I frown and hunch over instinctively. We are never alone. Beep, beep, beep. And that's my cue. I stop the alarm and switch my phone to silent. Any messages from Santiago will have to wait. Not that he's going to answer anyway. Sorry, I mutter. She shakes her head. No, I get it. I shouldn't have surprised you like that. I don't know what I was thinking. We're never on the same page. This is weird. I shrug as I heave myself up to smooth the black cigarette pants I convinced mom to let me wear and adjust my tucked in ruffled beige blouse. I thought you said you couldn't make it. I glance at her from the corner of my eye. She's rolling an enormous hard side spinner suitcase back and forth on the sidewalk. It's a sensible black, of course, but surprisingly large for an overnight trip. And I'm supposed to be the vain one. Jenny pauses mid-spin. I move some things around. Kezi was always going on about how important Chicago is to Black history. She told me over lunch that Obama moved here before law school, partly because of this guy. She looks at the doors of the theater behind us, at the clunky neon letters that spelled Harold Washington, the first Black mayor of Chicago. Oh, I thought it was because of Michelle's pheromones. She blinks. Over lunch. I hate when she does this. Gushes about all the sisterly things they had without me. Resentment oozes through my pores when I remember that so many of Jenny's memories with our middle sister are more recent than mine. I was only a year younger than Kezi and had lunch with her exactly once since starting high school. Jenny and Kezi were about seven years apart and they had a standing weekly date. I hate myself for wanting to compete for the title of closest to Kezi. And for what? I lose every time. None of that will bring her back. We enter the theater, and I don't stop to wait for Jenny, who is asking an usher to store her luggage someplace safe. I keep walking, on the brink of jogging, anything to make the gazes that follow me down the aisle of the auditorium a blur, inhuman. I plunk down into my seat with none of the grace and class that years of ballet, tap, and jazz lessons would suggest I have, or what 17 years of having Naomi Smith as a mother would demand. Let the public consumption of our misery begin, I whisper as I cross my arms. 
My mother doesn't need to use real words for me to understand her. Clicks and side eyes suffice to get her point across. You better get your act together, girl. She turns in her seat and grabs my father's hand. Their fingers meld into one on her lap. I ignore the flash of a camera that goes off to capture the very casual, completely unstaged exhibition of their courageous love. The lights dim and funky soul music jingles to life as Jenny slips into the empty seat beside me. She looks forward decidedly and remains silent. But I know the tap, tap, tapping of her index finger on her armrest is because she wants to tell me off for abandoning her outside with the overly chatty usher. But she won't, because acting right in public is first nature to her. It doesn't have to get nose pinched and poured down her throat like with me. It's another thing she and Kezi have in common. Had. Yes. Welcome, welcome. The president of the NAPVP's Chicago chapter stops at the acrylic podium and nods at the applause filling the room. He adjusts his baby blue silk tie and smiles so wide that his lips practically reach the back of his head. Welcome to our annual Salute to Excellence ceremony. We are so blessed to have the individuals that have rocked this city and our nation, he bows slightly in my family's direction, with us here this evening. Applause. Yes, indeed. These people have shaken up our communities and given us a whole lot to think on. You know, I've stayed up nights wondering, pondering who we are. Pause. What we deserve. Preach, a woman shouts from the back. And what we will no longer stand for. Tell him. I turn to witness a man in the middle row jump up from his seat. The chapter president pulls out a handkerchief from deep within one of the many pockets of his pinstripe suit and mops the sheen of sweat that has somehow already sprung up on his forehead. We have a ways to go, it's true. But right now, we celebrate the accomplishments we've made. This all sounds good. The crowd is inspired. My parents' previously intertwined hands have even dissolved from their unity blob to clap emphatically at the man's words. But I'm still without a sister. I still can't reconcile what happened to her, only three months out. I don't know if I ever will. I bring my hands together robotically as the show begins in earnest, first with a stirring rendition of the Negro National Anthem, where everyone but me seems to know there are second and third verses. The show drags along. There are spoken word poems and both high school and HBCU marching band performances. Certificates of academic achievement for recent graduates are passed out. Jenny's hand, the fingers of which have long since stopped pattering in annoyance, has just inched its way closer to where my elbow lays on the armrest between our seats when the students on stage whoop in self-congratulation. I jerk my arm away. She glances at me in simultaneous pity and irritation. There are other various demonstrations of salutation-worthy excellence, and then it's finally time for the keynote speaker. Our next guest never planned on being famous. She never thought that she would be called to carry the load that she walks with each day. She never imagined that she would receive the phone call that every parent dreads, but that so many Black moms and dads are forced to answer far too frequently in this country. The once celebratory crowd now settles into a familiar hush, the quiet that's reserved to show respect, to acknowledge that someone strong is about to speak. My mother smooths her skirt in her lap as she waits for the man to finish his intro. She lets out a shaky breath, and my dad gives her knee a gentle squeeze to bolster her strength. 
Naomi Smith is a resident of Los Angeles, California, and co-pastor of Resurrection Baptist Church, along with her husband, Malcolm Walker Smith. She is the mother of three beautiful young women, one of whom is no longer with us today. Kezia Leah Smith, known to her friends as Kezi, died senselessly by the hands of the very people who were supposed to keep her safe. Her death in April, following her unjust arrest at a social justice rally, has shaken us to the depths of our souls and beyond. And yet, Naomi has stepped forward with a grace and resolve that is truly admirable, speaking for so many families that have been forced to walk down this treacherous road. Today, she will receive the NAPBP Courage Award on behalf of Kezi. Mom stands and releases another slow exhale through her lips. Dad looks up at her from his seat with an encouraging nod and smile. As she makes her way onto the stage, the crowd begins to clap. It starts slowly at first, as if people are afraid to make too much commotion. But soon everyone is on their feet, hands smacking together thunderously as the chapter president opens his arms wide and then envelopes her in a hug, perfectly angled for all the cameras to catch. Mom takes her position behind the podium and smiles as everyone eventually stops their applauding to take their seats. As she begins to address the audience, she isn't mom anymore. She's the family spokeswoman, the practiced public speaker, the polished preacher addressing her doting congregation. To some, the way that she has stepped into this role with such dignity and speed could be explained only as divinely ordained. Now it's time for our writing prompt. I suggest setting a timer for six or eight minutes, putting the prompt at the top of your page, and free writing whatever comes to mind. Remember, the important part is keeping your pen moving. You can always edit later. Right now, we just want to write something new and see what happens. Write a scene where your character is having a physical and mental reaction to an extremely shocking moment. What happened? What will happen next? This book has so much buzz around its release. I feel so fortunate to get to have this conversation with Maika and Maritza and share it with you. Wasn't that excerpt from their book stunning? I ordered it right away. There's a link to one of the good ones in the show notes. I've been thinking about how Maika said that getting caught up in perfection keeps us from starting projects. Is there something that you've been avoiding starting because of perfectionism? I'm glad you were here today. If you have a moment, leaving the podcast a five-star review on the platform where you listen really helps me to reach more writers. I'm Sarah Gallagher, and this is Fierce Woman Writing. I'll be back next Thursday with another episode. Until then, keep writing. Become a supporting member of the podcast with a monthly contribution at FierceWomenWriting.com. Get more writing prompts and engage with other writers on our Instagram page at FierceWomenWriting. Remember, women is spelled with an X. You can also help us reach more writers by sharing this episode with a friend and subscribing, downloading, and reviewing the podcast. Thank you for listening.